0: so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire.
1: Peace be with you. Friends, we're continuing our reading today of that wonderful passage from the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, the Bread of Life Discourse. Jesus' fullest explanation of, presentation of, the doctrine of the Eucharist. The passage for today, in some ways, is the high point of this presentation, and it's one of the most shocking passages in the New Testament. Those who heard it were not only repulsed intellectually, they were probably disgusted viscerally. How come? Because Jesus is telling them, that he is the living bread come down from heaven and that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to come to eternal life. Now listen, even at a distance of 2,000 years and after volumes and volumes of theological reflection, we can find these words a little hard to take. Look, that he's a spiritual teacher, okay, everybody can agree with that. That he's an inspiring example, no problem. Even if you press it, that he must be the center of our lives, well, okay, people might say, maybe I'll get on board that train. But that his flesh must be eaten and his blood drunk in order to have eternal life, I don't think so. And we hear it in this gospel. How objectionable they find this teaching. How they quarreled among themselves when they heard it. Let's turn up the heat even a little bit. You're a Jew of the first century. And you're hearing this talk about eating a man's flesh and drinking his blood. You have the natural human visceral reaction against it. But for a Jew of the first century, this was especially repugnant language because of the strict prohibition throughout the Old Testament of the drinking of blood. Genesis chapter 9, we find this. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This was directly, explicitly forbidden for Jews to eat an animal's flesh with blood in it, because that was eating life, and life was God's concern. In Leviticus chapter 3, we find this. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You must not eat any fat or drink any blood. Deuteronomy chapter 12. The clean and the unclean alike you may eat... Only be sure you do not eat the blood. Now, I've chosen these almost at random. You can find them all throughout the Old Testament. It was expressly forbidden to consume the blood of an animal. And so, for a man, for a human being to be insinuating that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, that was about as nauseating and as religiously objectionable as you could get for a Jew of the first century. And that's why in the understatement of the millennium, John tells us they quarreled among themselves, saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, yes, of course they quarreled. So what does Jesus do? Does he soften his rhetoric? Does he offer a metaphorical or symbolic interpretation? Does he back off? On the contrary. And how strange this is. He intensifies what he just said. Listen. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. As all the scholars point out to us, the verb used here in Greek, trogain, For eat. The usual verb to use is fagain. That's the way human beings would eat a meal. Trogain indicates the way an animal eats. We might render it as gnaw. Unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Well, you see what he's doing. He's intensifying the very thing they find so objectionable. Insisting on the objectivity, radicality, of this teaching. Okay, so what do we do now? A remove of two thousand years as we wrestle with these texts, friends. If we stand in the great Catholic tradition, we honor these mysterious and wonderful words of Jesus. We resist all attempts to soften them, to explain them away to make them easier to swallow, we affirm with all of our hearts this doctrine of the real presence. You know, Vatican II taught us that Christ is present to us in any number of ways. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in their midst. Good. Whenever Christians anywhere in the world gather, Christ is present to them. He's present in the proclamation of the Scriptures at Mass. Quite right. It's Christ who proclaims the Gospel. He's present in the poor and the suffering, whom we are called upon to serve. Whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. He's present in the person of the priest at Mass. Quite right. All these presences, Vatican II insists, are real. Christ is present. Of course he is. Truly. Nevertheless, when we're talking about the Eucharist, we are talking about a qualitatively different presence. Something else. Something more. Both the Council of Trent and Vatican II teach that Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist. That means in a way that he's not present in the other forms, Thomas Aquinas said, in the other sacraments, the power of Christ is operative. It's Christ's power that's operative in baptism and confirmation, marriage, ordination. But he said, in the Eucharist, Ipse Christus, Christ Himself is present. This is why the Eucharist cannot just be one sign among many. It can't just be one devotion among many, one inspiring symbol among others. Rather, following this impulse of John chapter 6, following these radical words of Jesus, we have to say the Eucharist is the heart, soul, center, Of the life of the church, that upon which everything else hinges, from which everything else comes. John Paul II, in his last encyclical, and you think now providentially how appropriate that was, his last encyclical, Ecclesia De Eucharistia, the church is from the Eucharist. The church is made by the Eucharist. It's the lifeblood of the mystical body of Christ. All of this Catholic radicality honors John chapter 6. Okay. But now what prevents us, in the year 2006, from quarreling and walking away, as many of the first hearers of this sermon did? What clarity can we get on this great teaching. First, an observation. The Eucharistic change that we talk about, that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, Christians, is not one that can be in any empirical or scientific manner measured or observed. I think it's very important to keep that in mind to know what the nature of this change is. It's not a change that could be measured or seen or in any way empirically verified. Interestingly, Thomas Aquinas denies that the Eucharist is, strictly speaking, a miracle. Because by his definition, a miracle is the appearance of an effect whose cause is hidden. You see something amazing, you see an effect, you don't see its cause, and so you're amazed at it. You say, it's a miracle. But see, the Eucharist does have a hidden cause, quite right, but the effect doesn't appear. In the technical language of the church, the accidents of bread and wine remain unchanged. They remain the same. We can't see it, measure it, qualify it in the ordinary way. There were some frankly silly Catholic scientists in the mid-20th century who thought that you could notice a molecular change if you looked at the Eucharist through a strong enough microscope. Well, again, that's just silly. No matter how strong the microscope, no matter how penetrating the tools of observation, you can't see this change. You know, back in the Middle Ages, again, Thomas Aquinas, someone said there was a Instance of the Eucharistic wine leaving a blood stain on the altar cloth. And Aquinas, with his wonderful innocence, said, Hmm, that's puzzling, because typically the blood of Christ leaves a wine stain. Well, quite right. Though Christ is really present, the wine is really changed into his blood, it is not changed in any empirically verifiable way. So, What changes? What is this real presence? In the church's technical language, the substance of the bread and wine change into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. Again, don't interpret this in a scientific or even quasi-scientific way. Substance designates the deepest center and ground of a thing. It corresponds to the question, what is that? That's why it's correct to say in Catholic theology after the consecration, you don't have bread and wine on the altar. What is it there that's the body and blood of Christ? The substance, the deepest reality, the ground has changed. How do we know it's changed? Because of Christ's words. In the Bible, God's word creates. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth come forth, and the earth came forth. Let the light be separated from the darkness, and so it happened. What God says is, God's word is not just descriptive, it's creative. Therefore, since Jesus is God, what he says is. When he speaks those words, this is my body, this is my blood, he is changing these elements at the deepest level of their being. Their substance changes into the substance of his body and blood. And this is the great teaching of the church. Affirmed from the time of John 6 up until the present day, despite objections across the centuries. This is the great radical faith that we Catholics are obliged to hold. And from it comes the Church. From it comes our life. And God bless you.
0: I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708 449-6100 Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.